Aren't you glad to be saved today? Aren't you glad to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? God is so good. Well, we've got a lot of folks to pray for, don't we? We have a great God. He's never caught off guard and He's never overwhelmed. If you have your Bibles, if you can stand with me, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever, whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Father, thank you for the day you've given us and for your word. Help us, God, to be obedient to your scriptures. Draw us near to you. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You can be seated. I don't want to disappoint you, but we're going to try to wrap this thing up today, all right? Now, let me remind you, I started to, I thought about today getting here and saying, well, I, the, the, the guilty culprit has finally confessed. Well, that's not true, okay? I haven't been preaching at anyone at all. Just been sharing uh, what God has laid on my heart uh, because of the confusion about the Christian and alcohol. We've been here long enough, you know, by now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, wine does seem attractive. Uh, when it's red, it's you know, sparkling and smooth. It's pleasant to the senses of sight and taste. Now, I can't vouch for that. I've never tasted wine. Uh, but at any rate, but uh, eventually it can be devastating. It can be worse than a bite of a viper. Now, we've discussed this in quite a bit of detail, and we know that uh, both the Old and the New Testament give a lot of warning about the danger uh, of alcohol and especially uh, drunkenness. And even here in Proverbs, and we've taken several verses out of Proverbs, uh, that, is, that is very clear uh, of the warning and the sin of becoming drink with wine. And I find it interesting, uh, and again, I want to repeat what, some of what I said before, but we are all guilty of trying to justify what we want to do, no matter what it is. And it's amazing to me the arguments that people, Christian people today, would put forth to condone the Christian it's okay to drink alcohol. And one of them is the fact that they would say, well, they drank alcohol in the Old Testament, they drank it in the New Testament, and because they drank it, it must be okay for me to drink it. That's one argument. Uh, another argument was, and we said this a week or so ago, that at the Last Supper, the Lord drank wine. We dealt with that. We won't do it again. Uh, and then we gave several observations uh, why I think there's a good argument that that wine at the Last Supper was not fermented. Uh, one of them being that leaven, uh, any kind of fermentation, symbolized sin. Uh, the bread could not have leaven. Why would the alcohol, I mean, the wine have leaven in it? And priests were not allowed to drink any alcoholic beverage when they came to worship. The other argument we talked about uh, quite a bit of detail last week is the fact that they said, well, Jesus turned water into wine. And again, I realize whether which side you take, we, we can all present an argument for either way, uh, but I think we have to at least agree that, did he really do that? Would he uh, contribute uh, to some kind of drunken party? Well, a couple of observations. Now remember this, it's important, and we'll go into more detail later on today. Wine in that day was almost always diluted. 
at least one part wine to three parts water, sometimes one point wine to ten parts of water. And because that was a common practice, I think it's likely that the wine served at that wedding was diluted in the normal way. Now, there were several reasons they did that. Uh, and again, I'm not a wine connoisseur, but I did read or hear some of the last few weeks I've been going through this. Water enhances the flavor of two things more than anything else. Wine and coffee. I didn't realize that. But also, we're talking about a wedding here. A lot of guests. Maybe as many as 500. And they had to make the wine go a long way. So what do you do? You add water to it. It was a common practice of that day. So since it was a common practice, I think we have an argument that they may have uh, served the same kind of wine that day, diluted very much with water. And the third question I would ask, would Jesus provide something that would cause drunkenness? And by the way, we're not going to read the verse today. We did it last week. Habakkuk warns about that. Woe to those who give drink to make someone drunk. Would Jesus violate that warning? I submit to you he would not have done that. So that being said, last week we ended up with a question. We didn't get there yet. What then, if Jesus didn't turn that water into wine, let me back up, he did turn it into wine. The issue is, was it fermented or was it not fermented? That's where the debate goes. Everyone agrees he did turn it into wine. But if it wasn't alcoholic wine, what then was that miracle at the wedding of Cana? Well, it's simple, okay? Now think about this. The miracle of Cana was the fact that Jesus, being God, he transcended the normal amount of time of the natural processes it takes to produce the harvest of juice. What took months normally in the natural process, Jesus did just like that. He turned that water into wine. So what normally takes months, Jesus did it in a nanosecond. He turned that water into wine. Now, Augusta wrote this about this topic of the wedding of Cana. Augustine wrote, For he, on that marriage day, made wine in six jars. He ordered to be filled with water, the same one who now makes it every year in the vines. For as what the servants had poured into the water jars was turned into wine by the power of the Lord, so also that which the clouds pour forth is turned into wine by the power of the self same Lord. So the miracle was the same God who uses what we call a natural process to produce grapes. Would he not have the same power to produce it instantly? Absolutely. And he produced the wine. So that, my friend, is the miracle of the wedding of Canaan. And I'm also convinced that God didn't put it in his word to cause a debate about what kind of wine he made. In fact, the Bible says this was the beginning of miracles. And Jesus did the miracle. And by the way, if you read the whole story of the wedding of Cana, after the miracle was over, the disciples believed that he was the Christ. John says that they recorded every miracle Jesus did. Guess what? Books of the world wouldn't hold them. But this was the beginning of miracles.
And because the Bible does condemn drunkenness, we don't have a much of an argument about that. We know it's a sin. The Bible says so. And you can try to justify if you want, but it doesn't work. Because if the Bible says something is sin, guess what? It is sin. So what about social drinking? And I have to be honest this morning because I, I want to be very clear. Uh, I cannot find a verse in the Bible that strictly prohibits the drinking of any kind of alcohol. Yes, it does forbid drunkenness, excessive drinking, and because it might be a bad influence on those who are vulnerable to drunkenness. First Corinthians chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. But when ye sin so against the brethren... And wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make thy brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. Now let me make sure we clarify something here, and Paul will mention uh, wine a little later on as well in this same context. We're not talking about hurting somebody's feelings. Now, I want to say to you today, if you're feeling get hurt easy, stop wearing them on your, on your, on your cufflinks, okay, on your shirt cuffs. Life hurts. Sometimes people will say things that will hurt us. But that's not the kind of offense we're talking about here. Paul is writing about something that would cause someone to be offended so bad they would stumble in their walk with God. That's what we're talking about. So when it comes to the issue of should I drink or not as a Christian, we have to be sensitive to how the culture around us perceives the Christian and drinking. And we also have to understand that some cultures are more restrictive and other cultures are more permissive. And I personally believe that the American culture, uh, it would be responsible and wise for us who as Christians, and especially Christian leaders, to not drink any alcohol at all. Now, think about this. More and more, in the day we live, on, live in, we are being confronted as Christians with a question of whether or not it's okay for us to drink alcohol. And we have to understand that this is an important question, but there are some very serious consequences to the answer of that question. Now, if we say no, if the answer is no, then those who would allow themselves this indulgence would indeed lay a stumbling block before others. And they would certainly present an inconsistent message to the world. But also, I believe, they would fill the church with a dangerous leaven that would one day infiltrate the soundness of any local church. Why would I advocate? Why would I promote something as okay to do that has such a propensity to ruin people's lives? Why would I do that? Alcohol has caused or at least contributed to broken homes. Every kind of accident imaginable. Disease, physical as well as mental. 
poverty, from alcohol, and all sorts of crimes because of alcohol. And because it has that sort of effect, it's beyond my imagination why anyone, especially pastors, would try to justify its use. And by the way, I know they call it social drinking. Now again, I've never been a drinker. Don't plan on being. But from what I see and hear on the news, most of the time drinking is anything but social. Amen. Now I know, uh, for example, Jeremy works, well he says he works, at a company. And, uh, I mean, they spend thousands of dollars on their team, you know, having meetings at a restaurant, whatever. And uh, from what he tells me, most of them go, they have to go number one, but they can't wait till the drinking starts. Not just to enjoy a sip of wine with a meal. But guess to do what? Tell me about it, folks. Come on. So I submit, we can talk about social drinking all you want, but most of it is not anything social. It is anti-social. It has victimized the unborn. It has victimized children, teenagers, middle-aged, older people. Older people, who's that? It victimized all of us. Business people, laborers, folks in the country, folks in the city, the rich, the poor. And I doubt there's hardly anyone at all who has not felt at least somehow the effect alcohol has had in your family or in your life. It's bite and it's sting. And I really struggled this morning to understand how people who claim to be spiritually minded, people who claim to be morally upright, rationalize the use of alcohol. Our streets have been filled with blood because of alcohol. Graves have been filled in cemeteries because of alcohol. Our nation has suffered reproach because of alcohol. Corruption has filled our society because of alcohol. Shame and disgrace has filled our homes because of alcohol. And that's just a, a drop in the bucket, folks. And because of this, I cannot and I will not justify the use of alcohol. Again, Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever deceived thereby is not wise. Mm-hmm. What went on in some churches on Super Bowl weekend was a slap in the face of God. Don't tell me they were pushing social drinking. 
Don't tell me they weren't try, trying to advocate. And folks, when the church presents something like that, we're in a bad situation. I think a church ought to strive to preach holiness, lives of separation, lives that are different than the lives of the world. But let's compare apples with apples. Now remember, and I realize it could have been juice or it could have been permitted. I I won't argue that. But we're talking about the Jews in biblical days, not the world, the Jews. And the normal uses of wine by the Jews in the biblical days was not even close to the wine we have today. There's no comparison. Their wine could be grape juice freshly squeezed. It could be grape juice preserved, juice from dried grapes, grape juice made from grape syrup and water, almost like a paste. It could be unfermented or even fermented stored wine, diluted with water, and sometimes as high as 20 parts water to one part wine. That's how most of the Jews handled their wine. Now, if that wine was fermented and they didn't dilute it down, the Jews considered that barbaric. Think about that. In fact, they considered that to be defiling and the rabbi would not bless that kind of wine. Think about that. So when I think about these facts... How, and then we're talking about biblical facts now of, of the Jews who, how they handled wine. When I think about those facts, I think it's impossible to defend the modern day practice of drinking alcoholic beverages on the basis of how the Jews use the wine in biblical times. They are not the same and that is very clear. It's also interesting. What I read is according to tradition, Christians in the New Testament days exercised a more careful attitude toward different kinds of wine than the Jews even did. Romans 14, verse 21. Paul said it is neither good to eat flesh or to drink wine or anything whereby thy brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So they understood there was a reason not to drink this stuff. And this was diluted. Now also understand, and I, and I want to make sure, I think I have this maybe in context. Uh, Paul is probably speaking uh, primarily about things that were offered to idols in their worship. But nonetheless, Paul says if it caused somebody to stumble in their faith, if it causes them to become weak in their faith, Paul says, I will not do it. First Timothy 3, 3. Talking about a leader in the church, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetousness. Now, by the way, they'll, they'll, there'll be those that say, well, it says not given to wine, doesn't say, I don't drink wine, means not much. Well, I'm not sure about that either, okay, because the Greek word is very emphatic, uh, in that text, and, uh, you know, would somebody say it's okay, uh, as long as you're not given to much adultery? Or you're not given too much or anything else. But my point is this. The question we're dealing with today is the wine they consumed in the Bible, Old and New Testament, 
Is it the same as produced today? Now, think about this. One of the arguments they use is that you, they drank wine then in the Bible times. We can drink it now. It was common then. They drank it then. So I can drink it now. My question is, is that argument viable? Well, I want to remind you, when we talk about this a week or so ago in Sunday school, in Bible times, biblical times, they had slaves. So because they had slaves then, is it a viable argument that it's okay to have slaves now? Think about it. Now remember, if we're using that kind of logic, we have to compare apples with apples. Let's talk about slavery for a moment. Slavery was not universally prohibited in the Bible. It was allowed. It was permissible in certain conditions, certain situations. The slaves had to be regarded as full members of the community. They would receive the same rest periods. They'd get off for Christmas and Easter. No, you know, they'd get the same holidays. If you got off, the slave got off. And they were treated in a humane way among the Jews, God's people. In fact, slavery among the Hebrews was not meant to be a permanent situation, but a voluntary, temporary refuge for people suffering would have otherwise put them in a very horrible, desperate, destitute situation. Exodus 21, verse 12. He that smites a man so that he die shall be purely put to death. Now, by the way, that also applied to slaves. And the cruelty on the part of the owner meant, once that happened, you had to set the slave free. Verse 21, um, 26, Exodus 21, verse 26 and 27. If a man smite the eye of a servant or the eye of his maid, that he perish, he shall let him go free for his eye's sake. If a man smite out his maidservant's tooth or his I'm sorry, his manservant's tooth or maidservant's tooth, he shall let him go free for his tooth's sake. So when we think about comparing apple with apples, and we're looking at Hebrew slavery, Hebrew slavery was almost like a, a long-term labor contract among individuals. And it was less like the permanent exploitation that's characterized by slavery in our modern world. So slavery then was not like the slavery in our world today. Now what's interesting is, in, in, in Hebrew society, uh, the, the female slave even had, in one sense, a lot more protection. And the main purpose uh, for buying a female slave was so that she could become a wife of either the buyer or the buyer's son. Exodus 21, verses 8 and 9. If she pleases not her master who hath betrothed her to himself, 
Uh, he shall let her be redeemed to sell her to a strange nation. He shall have no power, seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. And if he have betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her after the manner of daughters. So you purchase a slave, a female slave, in order for a wife or a wife for your son. But also notice, the Bible says you to treat her, this slave, like you treat your daughters. That's interesting. Is that how the modern world treats slaves? Sweet. I don't think so. Not at all. It's also interesting. Uh, the Bible goes on to the next verse. We're not going to read it today. But it talks about if you decide to get rid of that, you treat her like you would your other wives. So she wasn't called a slave. She was considered a wife. And if you divorced her, you still had to give her clothing and food and make sure she's taken care of like you would any other wife. Again, Comparison there. And if you didn't do that, you were to set her free. So I want to say today, the facts show us that slavery in our modern world doesn't even compare to slavery among the Jews in Bible times. I would, I would dare say, anybody in their right mind would hardly advocate slavery by capture, Slavery by kidnapping or slavery by any tying, any kind of human trapping. So I ask you today, comparing apples with apples. We know that slavery in that day was not the same as today. So I ask again, what we know today is wine. What they were drinking in the Bible, is it the same or is what we have today different? Now, I mentioned this last week. In Bible days, it wasn't safe to drink the water. It would make you sick. Deathly sick. And it wasn't safe to drink fermented wine because it would make you drunk. And that was a sin. So they would take some wine and purify the water to get rid of the bacteria. And they'd take some water to dilute the wine to make it less intoxicating. So wine was a necessity in that culture. And I submit you today that what's going on in our world today doesn't even compare to that day. Doesn't even compare to that day. I think it was Jeremy when he was in uh, Wednesday night Bible study, real little, and Sister Barbara, our pastor's wife, asked him to sing a song. And I think he sang the song, Head to the Mountains. Bush. Now, I want to say, he never saw a drink Bush beer, but you know, I remember that commercial, right, on TV. What's going on today doesn't compare to what was going on then. Wine is no longer a necessity in our culture. Today, there are multinational corporate production by the alcohol industry. It's marketed across the face of the, the face of the world. And folks, I want to tell you, it's for a, a totally different purpose. I'm reminded of the Lay's potato chip commercial some years ago. When the man gave you a potato chip and said, what? Bet you can't eat one. 
those folks who produce and market it today, they are not trying to provide a necessary product. And I submit to you, they are not trying to provide a simple amenity to a meal. They want you to become addicted to it. Amen. They have a product with intoxicating power. And they produce it in massive quantities. Because they want to sell it in massive quantities. And they want you to buy it in massive quantities. And they want you to consume it. Do they know how destructive alcohol is? You bet your life they do. Now, I, I realize, and, and I watch the commercials, and a lot of times they'll put a note, please drink responsibly. Nothing wrong with that. Good advice. It makes you understand it is just a marketing ploy for one purpose and one purpose only. I Googled this past week to make sure my figures are up to date. But according to the statistics last year, there are over 25 million adults, that's over 12 years old, in America who are alcoholics. 25 million. Again, it destroys families. It destroys marriages. It destroys careers. And the list goes on and on and on and on. But in the Bible culture, the wine had such a low alcohol content, and it was produced locally, and it was produced in limited supplies. But now there's an unlimited supply of alcohol produced. Now the alcohol produced has a very much higher content of alcohol. I read it anywhere from 40 to 75% of alcohol, depending on what it is. And so we're comparing apples to apples. In biblical days and modern days, when it comes to alcohol beverage, different amounts available, different alcohol content. They are not the same. So the term wine in the Old Testament times, in the ancient world, didn't mean wine as we understand it today. But again, as I said earlier, wine mixed with water, a lot of times they would take and boil that wine down and they would make a paste out of it and they would take that paste and they would make a wine out of that. But once it was boiled, it lost all of its intoxicating power. The alcohol was gone. Now, strong drink in the ancient world would probably be half and half or even unmixed at all. And again, it was considered barbaric uh, the cultured person would not accept it uh, because strong drink was not acceptable in that culture. One particular document called the Apostolic Tradition uh, indicates that the early church followed this custom. And they only served mixed wine. Sometimes it was a syrupy paste or just a liquid base. It was always mixed with water. Now, so why? Why did they do that? They lived in an unsanitary world. What did Paul tell Timothy? Take a little wine for your stomach's sake, for medicinal purposes. They lived in an unsanitary world. 
and the water needed purified, and they used the wine to do that. Now, here's an interesting fact. Some would say, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Okay, they boiled it, which they did a lot of times, and they made a paste out of it. Uh, then they'd mix it with water and make wine. Well, if the alcohol is gone, what good is it to purify? Has it lost its power? I'm glad you asked. Modern studies have shown it was not the alcohol that killed the bacteria, but again, it was boiled, produced paste, the alcohol would be gone. It was in the process of fermentation. When that wine was fermenting, there were malic and tartaric acid produced in that process. And scientists now have confirmed it wasn't the alcohol that purified, it were those two acids that purified the water. And boiling removed the alcohol, but it didn't remove those two key acids. I don't know. I could be wrong. I know I'm not. God knows what he's doing. God knew they needed that, and he provided that for them. So when we think about wine in that perceptive, we think about wine with that background, it becomes a gift from God. A gift so that people could drink water. And that the bacteria that normally existed in water would be destroyed. And now the water and the wine became a drink of safety. A matter of health. A matter of saving life. So I cannot show you a verse in the Bible where it says it's absolutely wrong to drink wine. No, I cannot. But my question is, why would you? Why would you? We live in a sanitary world. I mean, come on. I went this morning. I, I, I struck my day with a glass of water. And uh, I get my ice out of my refrigerator, push that button. Slide it over a little bit, push it again, water comes out. And the water goes through a filter, but it goes through that. Now, my filter doesn't work. It's about two years old. Now, I don't care. But it, it comes, it comes, those things are expensive. It comes to the tap, you know, clear. I don't have to worry about it. How many glad for pure water? Amen. We don't have to worry about it. But they did. So why, I don't need it. Why take the chance? I remember growing up, going to school, and my mother would give me some money for lunch. And there were some boys flipping nickels on the bus. Remember, ever do that? And I don't know how, I don't know, we did it. And I'd lose my lunch money. And, uh, man, come lunchtime, I'd be hungry. And it dawned on me when I got older, I said, you know what? You better be careful there. You could become addicted to gambling. Now, I'm not, not, not saying I would have, but for some reason I saw a danger there. But I know this, if I never do it, I won't get addicted. And the same is true with alcohol. I don't need it. Jesus talked about that one time, about new wine. And he said, you know, you don't take new wine and put it in old bags. I hope we don't have any old bags here. But he, had a, he, he wasn't talking about Literally wine or grape juice. Now, he was using an illustration. They knew that. 
I mean, they put it in. They knew it would ferment, and that 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 bag would have to swell. But if you put it in an old bag, it would swell, but it couldn't take it. It would burst, and the wine would be wasted. And he used a, a worldly illustration to teach us something about the new wine of the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit is also represented by wine. And Jesus says, you cannot put the Holy Spirit in an old container. You've got to be made new first. Now, I know it happens simultaneously. But I don't know about you. If I'm going to drink, I'll choose to drink the new wine. The new wine of the Holy Spirit. Because I don't want to take a chance. I don't need it for purification. I don't need it because the water doesn't make us sick anymore. But I do need that new wine. One of my favorite verses is in the book of Daniel. Chapter 1, verse 8. The Bible says that Daniel purposed in his heart. That he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat or the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. My challenge today for all of us is let's dare to be a Daniel. Let's live holy, separate lives. Let's not advocate anything that could cause harm and destroy families. I was listening to, uh, I think it was John MacArthur a week or so ago about this topic. And he said, somebody came to him and said, well, what about uh, gluttony? It's a sin. There's no doubt about that. And John MacArthur said, I never heard anybody who drove off a cliff because they ate one too many tacos. But folks, alcohol is detrimental. Let's stand together. When I think about what we've talked about this many weeks, while I think it's important, I believe the crucial thing is whether or not you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because if you're not born again, no matter what you stop doing, you're not going to heaven. If you're not on the narrow road that Brother Rick sang about earlier, you're not going to heaven. But I'm convinced as Christians, we have to be honest with ourselves and honest before God and allow the Spirit of God to bring conviction in our lives where it's needed. And I would challenge anyone who's listening, even online this morning, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to consider that. I'm not talking about joining a church. I'm not talking about being baptized. I'm talking about crying out to God, acknowledging that you are a sinner, repenting from your sins and saying, God, I'm going to turn around and walk a different direction. You need to do that today. And Christian, I ask you today, what kind of example are we setting for the lifestyle we choose to live? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the new wine of the Holy Spirit. Fill our lives today. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Rick, whenever you're ready, let's sing a verse or two of invitation this morning.
I do hope you followed, made a decision to follow Christ this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Follow him today. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.